I want to start this evening with a cartoon from my collection, and uh, you can decide whether I should put it in the meditation subset of cartoons. It's from the cartoonist Hilary Price. She has that strip called Rhymes with Orange, and it's got a little subtitle, As Medicine Advances. And it's a, someone in a doctor's office, they're sitting on that examining table, and the doctor's there with the clipboard, obviously giving the results of a test that's just been completed. And the doctor is saying, this MRI confirms it, your mind is full of dumb and repetitive thoughts. <laughs> so does it go in the meditation subset or not? I think so. So this is our common experience, right? We sit down to meditate and what is our, what we often notice is the narrator, the commenter, this this voice in the head that's talking to us about what's happening. And I just thought there was, you know, how sometimes tea bags have little names on them or some types of tea and there was one where they put constant comment. Like, why would they think that was a good idea that people would have a warm feeling about something constantly commenting on stuff. But so it's a very common experience, this thread of narration, of comment, of evaluation, of justifying, of rehearsing. But where we really get into trouble, where this actually becomes a problem is it's not usually neutral. This voice can have an edge to it, right? It's not just the constant comment, it's the constant critic. It's that voice that's always evaluating and judging and usually judging, especially ourselves, as not good enough. This comparing and evaluating in in an insistent kind of way is just a a framework um, through which we view the world. And so I was very familiar with this myself. This was uh, when I meditate, when I especially began my practice, it was just humbling to see how much mental energy was spent with this kind of mindset. And it's very painful once you start to really pay attention to it, bring it in to the mindfulness. So for myself, I really made it a focus of my practice because it was so painful. Um, I saw how much suffering there was around that. So I read books about it. I explored it in my practice, talked to teachers about it. I did a workshop on it with this man uh, called Byron Brown, and he's a student of the Diamond Approach that A.H. Almas um, is the main teacher of in the Bay Area. Many people, many of our friends are a part of that school of work and very insightful combination of uh, spiritual spiritual work and psychology. And he wrote a book called Soul Without Shame, and a lot of some of what I quote tonight will be from him. And he said, Judgment is a central element of your inner dialogue, the way you talk to yourself. From that point of view, it is second nature to you, so close to you that it is hard even to become aware of its existence. However, there is good reason to isolate this part of your inner process. Self-judgment is perhaps the greatest source of inner suffering and discontent. More than that, or because of that, it is one of the major barriers to change, growth, expansion, and transformation. And I really think that's true, that working with this inner critic can be one of the powerful ways that this practice is healing and transforming, and that it's really essential 
to work with this tendency of mind if you have it and to start to create a foundation, a, a, a more basic stance that's one of acceptance, kindness towards ourselves and to others. Because acceptance is at the heart of our practice. Accepting that this is how things are, this is what the truth of this moment is. And if we're always judging and comparing and evaluating, we don't let ourselves have that sense of openness and equanimity and balance that the acceptance can bring. So we accept the, the, the trajectory of this path is to accept our experience, our bodies, our minds, others, as they are. It doesn't mean change won't happen, but we start from that place of acceptance. Otherwise, there's separation. There's this sense of the heart being closed, the heart being walled off to our own internal life and emotional life, and certainly to accepting and connecting with others. And I see this as a source of suffering in so many people that I talk to in the meetings that we have. It's just amazing. And every now and then, if the topic comes up and someone says, you know, I don't really struggle with that. I go, really? You don't? Because nearly everyone that I speak to on some level, and some people it's, it's huge and major, and others it's you know, a challenge but perhaps not so pervasive, but all of us, mainly, many of us seem to have this tendency. And it's really endemic in the culture. It's kind of conditioned in this culture. And what's so kind of poignant about it is this is the kind of suffering that is mind-created. There was that question this morning. We create this suffering. We learn to create this suffering for ourselves and for others. So beginning to bring this into the light of awareness, bring it into our mindfulness, as a, as a, so there's an opportunity for healing, for transformation, is so valuable. And it's central to this practice. This is not kind of a... a, 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 a what do you call it, a, a side road you might take that's just something that you as an individual might have to feel. Everyone else is on this, you know, beautiful straight path that's just Dharma and, you know, three characteristics, eightfold path, and you're struggling with self-judgment. It's central because in there is the heart of the Dharma. It's how we, how we view ourselves. There's metta, there's kindness, there's wisdom, there's equanimity. If we open and turn to this, all of the Dharma will be revealed to us and possibility for greater and and deeper freedom. So I really see it as central. If this is a challenge for you, if this is an issue for you, that this work, this practice, this retreat is a powerful place to begin this process of unfolding. Because what we, even though we'll give talks and we'll talk about not-self, anatta, as a teaching, it doesn't mean there's a vacuum there and that what we're trying to do is get rid of a sense of self. A sense of self is very real, and it's actually quite helpful, you know, to know which is your room and your clothes and and, uh, when you leave here, where you'll go home to, all of this relative kind of stuff. We don't want to lose track of that. So helpful. But we want to uh, cultivate a healthy sense of self, one that's 
useful for us as a tool in our practice so that when the time is right, we can let that sense of self go. But it's not limiting us and constricting us as we do our practice. Jack Engler, someone who's practiced here a lot, a, um, a psychiatrist, says, has this great line, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. And what he's pointing to is this, uh, to really do this work of um, deconstruction that the practice invites us into of seeing the compounded conditioned nature of reality, there needs to be some sense of a healthy sense of self, that we have the confidence and the sense of well-being to actually begin that deep process. So for many of us, a lot of our spiritual practice can be devoted to this kind of healing, this kind of transformational work. And it's really important, really necessary to allow us to deepen in wisdom and compassion. Again, not tangential, not something that you know sort of need to fix before you can get to the real work of meditation, but central to our practice. Because what happens is we go through, or we're in this flow of working on the very personal level, our own history and conditioning and memories and hopes and fears. And as we gain some steadiness and confidence and trust, ability to be in the moment with this practice, we move more to the impersonal, the three characteristics that apply to everything and everyone. And so there's often this very natural movement of an unfolding and a deepening on the personal level, very uh, intimate work of healing, And as the mind steadies and opens and deepens, then the impersonal. The Buddha was referring to this in this uh, teaching at the end of uh, a sutta in the Udana, where he said, searching in all directions with one's awareness, one finds no one dearer than oneself. In the same way, others are fiercely dear to themselves. So one cannot hurt others if one loves oneself. And the sense of as we appreciate how precious we are, this precious human birth that Guy spoke about the other night, we realize that others too feel the same. And so there's this sense of the union of wisdom and compassion. We see this deeply and recognize it's true for all beings as we care for ourselves and want the best for ourselves and that it's a valid wish to want the best for ourselves. We can intuit that others too want that for them. So as we settle in the meditation and begin this process of deep listening, deep uh, sensing into the mind and body, what happens for many people many people, and it can happen over and over again, is old habits come to light. We see them more clearly, see their sense, their limitation, old patterns, and certainly old memories can emerge. Things you perhaps hadn't thought about for years may come up with a sense of regret or remorse or guilt or shame um, or anger or fear about them. This is a really uh, common process. For many people, what comes up are memories of ways in which we feel inadequate. Again, this internalized message that we've learned from family, from culture, from peers, from the media, that we're not okay. 
and we can just get that reinforced from these old memories and patterns that we see. But even in the moment, as we're here on retreat, getting triggered over and over again with this sense of not okayness. And we've taken in that message on all these different areas of our looks and our intellectual abilities, our, acad- our sporting ability, our style, sense of style, clothing, you know, there's a certain non-style uh, <laughs> meditation uh, fashion sense that we have here where that's not so much a, an area of judgment, but out there in the world, it hasn't changed. There's so much emphasis put on, you know, what do you wear? I, you know, these award shows, especially movie star kind of things, where they say, who are you wearing? It's like you, they've got a human being draped around them. Who are you wearing? It's like, that's the most, not the work or the movie, but the dress. It's, 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 it's really distorted. You know, what we own, what kind of car we drive, all of these messages that get put out there about that's how we can ascertain our value, our worth in society. And we can even pick up the, the message that we should be critical of ourselves, that that's actually the appropriate stance to have. You know, if we, we have a sense of, of well-being and, and self-acceptance, that's not okay. It, it's like the, the whole message is, the sense of criticism is, is really very central. And sometimes this can get distorted to the, to, to the beliefs that, we're bad in some deep and essential way. We don't deserve to be here. We don't have a right even to exist, this sense of shrinking, not really taking our place in the world, can really be a huge source of suffering. So I, in the work that I've done with this, I found it really helpful to actually look at some of these core beliefs. Again, not dragging them in, it's not talking about doing therapy, but if they're up for you, if, if you find that these messages are coming for you, these kinds of thoughts are happening for you, to begin to bring them into the field of the mindfulness, to start to look at them in and of themselves and some understanding of how they got formed. The, the Buddha invites us into the, in the fourth foundation of mindfulness to know when there are hindrances or obstacles for our practice, things that are causing suffering. How are those things created? What were the conditions? And how do we then, knowing that, abandon or let go, not perpetuate those conditions? So we can do this same practice with these messages of lack of self-worth. If we don't bring our wisdom this kind of penetrating insight to these, we can be stuck. We can be working on one certain level, but being undermined constantly by this sense that we're not okay, that we can't do this, that we're not doing it right, that everyone else has got it figured out, and we're the one that's stumbling around not knowing what we're doing. Ever have that thought that everyone seems to know where they're going, very purposeful, and you're kind of, huh? What's happening now? What am I meant to be doing? It's It's a real barrier to our ability to fully land. So to bring it into the light of mindfulness if it's happening, because otherwise it, it gets more and more solidified, creates a worldview. And sometimes it's so, uh, we're so intimate with it, we don't see how it's shaping, how we're experiencing the world. I read this uh, a little while ago, Jules Pfeiffer, who's an American cartoonist, 
is rather famous, I think, for this quote. I grew up to have my father's looks, my father's speech patterns, my father's posture, my father's opinions, and my mother's contempt for my father. (laughs) And you can see, you know, when you see that play out in the family life, that that's what you take in, um, that you're not okay, and it can be very deep. So this is not a new phenomenon. This was around at the time of the Buddha. The Buddha talked about this tendency of mind. He called it mana, which usually gets translated as conceit. But by conceit, we usually think of a kind of puffing ourselves up, a kind of pride. What the Buddha meant by conceit was any kind of evaluating, better than, worse than, or even the same as, that same functioning of mind is happening where we're separating self from other and making these judgments about how we shape up or how someone else shapes up. And what's interesting is mana as a mental factor is one of the last fetters to go before full enlightenment. It's so deeply ingrained. Again, this is at a very, very subtle level. It's not the kind of judge that we often have on a day-to-day basis, but this subtle reification of self and sense of self and other is there at this very deep stage. So again, as I looked at in this, into this from my own understanding, I always find it helpful to kind of go back to our biological roots, our evolutionary process to understand this mind-body, because even though we have this big brain, this big human brain, there's also a little amygdala back there that's like the reptilian brain, right? That's got this very primal, easily activated response of fight, flight, or freeze that's very vigilant about our environment and easily triggered and often the source of this kind of movement of mind. And it wasn't that long ago, evolutionarily speaking, that our ancestors had to, on a daily basis, make the decision, do I eat it or does it eat me? You know, do I run or do I chase kind of thing? And that's in us. You know, on the evolutionary scale, it's not that long ago. I read a book a while ago that I found fascinating by Jared Diamond, Uh, called Guns, Germs, and Steel, about the evolution of civilization in different places and why certain civilizations flourished and what they had access to. Uh, Just really revealed a lot to me. But in it, he said that it was only about 7,500 years ago, again, not long on the evolutionary scale, when the automatic response of of someone on meeting a stranger was to try to kill them. It was just they were the enemy. If, they were, if you didn't know them, they were other. You know, you had your tribe and then outside of that. And he did a, a lot of uh, study in Papua New Guinea. And he said, in Papua New Guinea, when strangers met away from a village, they'd spend a long time talking to establish their relationships with each other and therefore why they shouldn't kill each other. So it's like, oh, I know so-and-so and you know so-and-so and my cousin Mary and your auntie so-and-so. Oh, okay. We do know each other. It's okay. <laughs> That's in here, in there somewhere. You know that kind of vigilance and that needing to evaluate: Am I safe here? And out of that vigilance, this tendency to judge and evaluate. 
has kind of gotten on steroids because most of the time, you know, in some places, certainly in some parts of the world, there is that still very much of people living in fear and suffering and misery. And it's heartbreaking to recognize how pervasive that is in the world today. You know, there's the, the people living in struggling in, in war and poverty and with disease and all kinds of really challenging situations. But as we've been acknowledging, that we're here and we're blessed to have this place of refuge. And so that isn't as activated for us most of the time. But the force is still there. And it gets directed into this evaluating and judging. And as I've been saying, and the media perpetuates this sense of comparing. I mean, television shows these days, when, when, when will the absorption, the fascination with reality shows end. It has to have an end, right? It had a beginning. It's impermanent, right? (laughs) It has to have an end. I I keep waiting for it, but they keep coming up with new ones, and it's like whole 24 hours of reality shows where the main emphasis is in judging and comparing and evaluating and being cruel and voting people off and cutting people down. And people are getting their entertainment from this and thinking that that's a valid way to relate to other people. It's really sad. One of my teachers, Sonny Rinpoche, says uh, he calls this tendency to self-hatred the disease of the West. He said, I, I didn't know it when I, growing up in India and Nepal. But he said, now I, I've seen it so much in the West, and now he sees it in the westernized countries of Asia, like Singapore and Taiwan, that the young people are growing up with more of this tendency. So it's very sad to see so much suffering around it. So it's very pervasive and a real source of suffering for many of us. So again, back to Byron Brown. One of the questions he asked, as I've been pointing to, is how did this voice come into being? Well, you know, again, a conditioned thing. Where did, it, where did it come from? He said, as children, we had to learn social norms to get along, develop a conscience. As this procedure became internalized, it can become overactive, overcritical. This voice becomes the judge the critic of everything we experience. And as we mature and actually bring it into the light of awareness, we can start to see that this this judge was helpful, now not so helpful because it limits and controls us. And the basic message of the judge is, I'm not good enough. People won't like me just as I am. You know, I have to kind of put on this persona, this facade, only show parts of myself to be liked, to be accepted. And it can often follow it, those, those messages with, you'll never change, you haven't got what it takes. This is how you are in life. Again, another quote from Byron Brown. The judge is a conscience that helps you distinguish right from wrong. It is a motivator to push and persuade you to act in your life. It is a God that stops inappropriate feelings and behavior. It is a counselor for support in making decisions. It is a guide that provides direction as you make your way. It is an authority figure offering recognition and approval. It is a yardstick for measuring your progress. 
And last, it is a mirror that reflects back to you who you think you are. Each person needs help in these ways. What you were not taught while growing up was how to discover the true source of these functions within yourself. Your true nature has the potential to meet all these needs, but only if the qualities necessary to do that are recognized as existing within you. When you were a young child, it was important that parents or responsible adults were there to fulfill these roles. As you grew up and became responsible for yourself, you had to find ways to meet these needs on your own. Unfortunately, you got little, if any, support in recognizing and developing your own inherent capacities. You had little choice but to internalize your parental role models in the form of the judge. You may not be happy with the way it performs these important functions, but you are familiar with your judge and you know that it is dependable and will always be there for you. Lest we forget the judge is not bad or evil or even useless. None of us would have survived into adulthood without a judge. Our society would not be as civilized as it is without the judge's constant presence. Each of us will need a judge until we find a source of effortless functioning, direct knowing, and objective conscience within ourselves. In the meantime, the judge is all most people have to get the job done. However, it is also mechanical, restrictive, inefficient, and insensitive. It does a poor job of supporting the life of the spirit. So I like that because it conveys the, both the evolution of the judge, its usefulness, but how we have to shift our relationship to it. We have to find this reference point, this source of inner knowing for ourselves and not be driven by this voice of criticism, of judging. So in this workshop that I uh, spoke about that I did with Byron Brown, he, we had us do a number of exercises, and one of, which, one of which was a repeating question in dyads. Some of you may know that form, but you sit with a partner, and they ask you the same question over and over again. It can be very maddening and frustrating, but the idea is that you deepen. You know, as you give the superficial answers, you gradually explore what's your true response to that question. And the question he had us explore is, what's right about judging? And this was very revealing to me because I'd always thought of it as bad or wrong and I should get rid of it. I shouldn't do it, basically, because it was suffering for myself and others. But to actually explore why I did it, why, especially judging myself, was really very helpful because all habits of mind get conditioned, just as he said, because they serve us in some way. We need to understand that so we can find that, that a value, you know, find that uh, functioning somewhere else or start to unwind, realize we don't need that form anymore. If we didn't feed it, it would wither away. We have fed this voice. We have welcomed it in, we've given it a home, we've bedded it down, we've made friends with it as best we can, 
because it's there. It's so much a part of our experience. So what I started to see is this judging voice has a hook in it. It has something pleasant, the Vedana of pleasant in it. And that might seem like not so, you know, it's ugly, it's unpleasant, it's, it's harmful, it's dukkha, but it wouldn't survive unless somehow it hooked us, unless something in the way we related through the judge fed or served some part of ourselves. So sometimes we can see how perhaps it did that when we were young and we really needed that sense of evaluating and navigating in the world. But now as more mature adults, how does it still serve us to belittle ourselves, to be critical and demeaning? We need to look at this. So the judge, as Byron Brown said, functions like a form of wisdom, right? Keeps us out of trouble, on the straight and narrow, as they say, sometimes not, sometimes you, you know, throw it aside and you do that crazy thing, but that's its basic functioning. So there's that sense of it, it keeps us safe, right, out of trouble. And when we judge others negatively, you know, there's a sense of superiority, oh, I'm not like that, look at what they're doing, and we can feel that sort of sense of self that gets inflated. And often in that pointing outwards, we don't have to look at the places where we feel deficient. It's actually a defense mechanism against feeling that as we judge others to be inferior, you know, and that sense of safety and separation from the other. Interesting, and I'll talk more about this, when we judge others as better than ourselves. Again, what's the payoff in that? And for myself, I really saw there was a sense of safety in feeling diminished that I didn't have to try, you know, and it's still amazing to me that I'm someone who can now sit and speak to, you know, 100, 200, even more people. In my early years, that would have been unthinkable to me that I could do that. And so I hid behind my sense of worthlessness. You can't do that, so don't try. You know, what they say, the fear of public speaking rates above nuclear war and death and taxes in people's fears. Um, I totally believed that. It would, would be impossible for me to, to sit here and do that. So we feel safe. We don't have to, to try. It can sometimes justify our sense that life is unfair, you know, that we're a victim here. Oh, they have more than others. It's not, it's not my fault that I'm in this position. And we can have blame or envy um, about others. Most interesting is judging ourselves negatively. What often happens is, as I said, we internalize a message we received from our authority figures, whether they were our family, parents, older siblings, um, even our peers, the one, you know, trying to join the in club and you had to accept the message that they gave you of who you were. And we didn't have the strength, the capacity to push back against that. So again, there was safety in, in believing that. We can see, have these messages of contraction around, as I said, this persona or mask, this limitation we put on ourselves. I'm not lovable when I'm like this, or I'm only lovable if I, if I reject this part of myself, if I don't fully show up and express myself. 
You know, Groucho Marx has this great line, I wouldn't want to belong to any club that would have me as a member. It's like that, you know, counterpunch that you, you, you reject what, what you don't think will accept you. So you don't have that sense of not being lovable, not being accepted. So you push that part down. So again, because of this conditioning, it can just feed this stream of thought so close to us, so part of our sense of ourselves that we often don't recognize that it's actually happening. But it is conditioning our experience and how we show up in the world, how we respond to the world. The trap or the problem is we think this flow of thought, especially the judging negative critical, critical thinking, We think they're observations, right? This is just how things are. I'm like this, they're like that. This is what I'm always like. It's just the way things are. We think it's true because we think it. Has meditation showed you that that's perhaps not correct? Just because you think it doesn't mean that it's true. And we need to challenge these thoughts. I mean, the Buddha's message was, look at the thoughts that cause suffering. Abandon those. Suffering for self, suffering for others. This is part of the teaching. And this is a huge source of suffering that we can learn to work with. So we need to discern the difference between uh, observation and judgment. Judgment so colored by, filtered through our perceptions. And we'll talk more about that in other talks. And so we need to start to be a little more sensitive to this. And sometimes you might feel that you need to be more sensitive. You can feel the impact, but really, we sometimes have to hit rock bottom with this, really feel how wounding this is, how painful. We are meaner to ourselves than we would ever be to someone else, right? Say things, uh, are harsh and critical, use language, We would never say, even to an enemy, I wouldn't think, the way we can sometimes speak to ourselves. So to really feel the pain of that, that is the motivation to begin this work of transformation. So we bring it into the mindfulness. These judgments are just another thought in the mind. I did that thought game the other day where hopefully you got a sense and perhaps since then have worked with seeing a thought arising, persisting, ending, right? Or perhaps starting to arise and you're aware of it, poof. To start to transform our relationship to thoughts, to see they have the power we choose to give them. If they're unnoticed, if you're unmindful of them, you believe them, there's your world with all of that judging and evaluating and contraction. To bring it into the light of mindfulness, as light as a feather, a fog, a wisp. This is the power of mindfulness. We can start to look at them as another conditioned arising. And that's good news. The fact that they've, been, that they've been conditioned means they can be unconditioned. They also are subject to the three characteristics. They're impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. They're not telling you 
the truth of who you are. So we bring the wisdom in. And as we deepen in this path of practice, we start to gain this sense of confidence and trust, faith that Kamala was talking about the other night. And we value truth. We value clear seeing. We start to see through the filters of perception and perhaps get closer to the truth of things, the way things really are, not through this distorted lens. And we start to trust that more than this nagging critical voice of deficiency that only brings suffering with it. The, the, in the light of wisdom, the light of compassion, that voice doesn't have weight. It can't land in us, on us. Again, from Byron Brown, the only real alternative to self-judgment is knowing the truth about who you are. If you have a deep belief that you are worthless, you must discover where that belief came from and why you believe it to be true. Once you know deep inside you with a direct and felt sense that you have inherent value and are fully acceptable to yourself, then you will free yourself from the need for positive judgment and approval from yourself and your own judge. So it's shifting, excuse me, shifting the, the emphasis, the inner equilibrium from believing and buying into this negative and judging voice to this sense of well-being, this valuing of contentment and peace and ease. And it, I mean, I know it's not this simple, but it's kind of like, which do you choose? His well-being and ease and compassion and kindness and all of these things that we want and his negativity and contraction and, and fear and, and evaluation and judging and fixing. Not that simple, but we are making choices. Let's bring it into the light of mindfulness and start to choose more wisely. As I said, I've had to work with this tendency on, on retreat and in my life, very painful sense of, especially the self-judging, pretty skilled at judging others, could rattle that off, you know, that's, that's easy to do. But the one that really is, is so demeaning and, and diminishing is the judging of self. And worked on it a lot here in this place, in this hall. I remember doing my first long meta retreat, actually, first meta retreat. I'd never sat a meta retreat, but I came here, P1, P2, I forget which, did six weeks of doing intensive meta. Never done a meta retreat before. I was an anti-meta person, you know, a lot of anti-matter in the universe. There's lots of us anti-meta people too. I was one of them. But, you know, finally realized it's actually what I needed to do or should do. So signed up, sublet the house, bought the ticket all the way from California. I think Guy was probably sitting the retreat too, and both practicing, you know, independently doing metta and going to see the teachers upstairs, just like you've been doing. And metta, uh, we may have said already, it's a concentration practice as well as being a practice of opening and steadying and, and uh, um, strengthening the capacity of kindness and well-wishing. Well, I would notice that the concentration side was working, you know, as getting more steady in the phrases, having some of the effects of concentration. But the meta side, eh, you know, I'd go to my teacher and say, well, a little kind maybe, or 
friendly. I could call it friendly, but I wasn't having the love, the bliss, the whatever it was I thought I should be having, that I was imagining they were waiting for me to have, you know, this kind of thinking that the teacher is evaluating, which believe me, we are not doing, but that was what I was projecting. So about two weeks in, I go in for another one of these reports, kind of, it's okay, you know, it's not great, but it's okay. And my teacher gave me a different instruction, said, well, why, yeah, why don't you try that? Go and do that for a change. In a fairly neutral way, I have to admit, but I took that line and gnawed on it. You know how you do, and I have such a clear memory, down the steps, coat on, out the front door, you know, down here. My walking path was always down there by the cars, between the vegetables, by Greg's apple trees. And by the time I got down there, I had twisted those words into, try that for God's sake. Maybe that will actually have something finally break through the, you know, hopeless nut that she is. And I was just so convinced that I'd failed, you know, that it was hopeless. Why did I ever think that I could do meta? And six weeks of meta, what was I thinking? And, you know, could I, could I just go home? You know, but it was in California. The ticket had been bought. The house had been sublet. You know, it was really, you know, the school bus would go by. Like, could I hitchhike, you know, plane, anything <laughs> out of here? I even had the thought, and this is two weeks into a six-week retreat, could I pretend? Could I just go into the interviews and just say, yes, go very well, Meta, I really like, you know. <laughs> so all of that, you know, of just completely every judging thought, you know, who was I, what was I thinking, I'm hopeless, never being able to love, never love, love unlovable, the whole storm of, you know, anti-Meta feeling. And I'm just trudging, I couldn't say I was walking meditate, trudging up and down with this. But at some point, there was a moment of grace. And I have to think it was because I had been practicing metta for two weeks or so already. I had this thought that came, you know this place really well. The place of just, you know, you're hopeless, it's hopeless, beat yourself up. It's very familiar. It's like an old tatty overcoat I could put on and just wallow. It was like wallowing or like the edge of an abyss. And I was on my way down. But the thought said, at some point, you'll come out of that. Something will shift, whether it's time or some outside influence, something will shift, and you'll find your way out of that despair. What would it take to get from here to there without wallowing for whatever, an hour, a day, days, weeks? What would it take? And the answer came, I'd have to accept myself. I'd have to accept that this was the amount of metta that I could generate that this is what metta practice looks like for me. And I'd have to be okay sharing that with my teachers and being with that for the retreat. And that was such a relief, such a transformation. And I'd love to say, and then, you know, the heavens opened and rainbows and unicorns. It didn't happen that way. I just kept practicing, but I was able to continue. And then it did deepen. And the retreat was really powerful for me, but that was a pivotal moment. I just had to accept this is what metta looks like. If I could do it better, I would, but I couldn't. So this acceptance is so key to see the suffering and not believe the story that it's hopeless. If you don't accept that this is how it is right now, you're going to suffer 
It's that simple. Whatever you're pushing away or trying to hold on to, suffering is the result. And so we can practice with this, whether it comes up with story or images, thoughts, feel it in the body. Let the body open to this. Again, not having to retell the story, dredge up old memories. It's here now. Can we hold it with tenderness, with acceptance? This is where the forgiveness practice is really helpful, and we'll talk more about that. To say that this happened, or, you know, this is what it's like right now, and it's okay. So this work can be transforming as we move into this place of kindness and care for ourselves that says, this is how it is. This is all I can do. This is what my practice looks like, my mind, my heart. From that place of acceptance, the transformation, the healing, and the deepening can happen. As I said, accepting others or judging others is a a place there's also a lot of suffering out of the sense of separation, out of the feeling of the the quality of that, that mind state. And again, we can bring this into the light of awareness, see how we create the world through our sense of self and our perceptions, our views and opinions. We're most of the time not seeing really clearly, not seeing the truth of things. And we're limited by this, yet we take it to be the way things are. This is the truth about me, and this is the truth about them. This is what they're like. This is what the problem is. Really helpful as we get closer and clearer in our seeing, why this is called insight practice, seeing clearly, that we're often mistaken in our perceptions. We often don't know, even for ourselves, what's going on. I mean, there's a whole exploration happening about what's really happening. What am I feeling? What am I thinking? What's going on? But certainly when we project onto others that we often don't know what other people are feeling and thinking and why they're doing what they're doing. We have all of these assumptions and beliefs and we make these snap judgments about people but we don't know. You know, most people are trying to be happy and not suffer. We may, it may be distorted just like it can be for us, but we don't trust that or we don't believe that. We, we're, we get so judgmental about other people. And I, I see it for myself how, um, how he, you know, I do a lot of work at Spirit Rock and there's often challenges that come up and you hear a decision that's been taken of some direction, and you're like, why did they do that? I would never have done that. That's the worst thing to have done. And why didn't they think of this? And they should, and, you know, a whole storm of judgments about what happened. And then my meet with the people or get more information. It's like, oh, they were taking that into consideration. I hadn't thought about that. Or they had that as a factor that was important. Or there was this that was also happening at the same time. And as I realize that, I see, oh, that's why they did what they did. And so I've just gotten to see it doesn't help to leap to these judgments about why people are doing what they're doing until I can stand in their shoes 
and start to understand what was going on. So really, uh, my practice so much is to not leap to the it's wrong, it's bad, it shouldn't be that way. But let's see if we can understand this together, figure this out, what's happening. Because otherwise, there's that sense of separation, this kind of wagging finger that I know best. You know, if everyone did it the way I want it done, wouldn't the world be a better place? But that means you all have to do it the way I want. And it's futile, right, to think the world is going to, to respond to that. So we just start to see that it's so much pain when we try to control things. Had a student on another retreat who was really struggling with this, especially in the work meditations. And she finally realized her mantra became, lower your standards and relax. And that was the source of a lot of relief for her because she was trying to have everything be done the way she wanted it done in the teamwork, in the meditation. And it was futile. It's bad, hard enough to do it when we're talking to someone, let alone trying to do that in silence through, you know, sign gesture and, and, and motions, writing notes about how things. Let it go. Start to trust other people and not have that sense of... Uh, needing to evaluate all the time. Because we can't know their motivations, their feelings, their thoughts. The Dalai Lama is such an inspiration around this because he said, you know, everyone who meets him falls in love with him because you feel like you're his his long lost friend. He's been waiting for you to come and meet with him. And everyone says, how do you do that? What's the magic, the miracle? And he says, I don't do anything except look for what's common between us. I look for the shared humanity. He says, try to cultivate a deep recognition of the equality of all beings, their potential to be free, their right not to suffer. As we start to relate to people like that, rather than what's wrong or how they're not living up to our standards or doing things the way we want them to be, Life gets a lot easier, believe me. So just to say a few more words about accepting ourselves, because this is, I think, the real heart. The more we can fully accept ourselves, the less tendency we have to judge others, because it's out of the pain of our own internal uh, criticism that we tend to direct it also to others. And we can see more clearly the payoff in judging others, you know, a sense of pride, of separation, I know what's right. They say the best defense is a good offense. It's like, I'll push that away and then I don't have to feel my deficiencies. And I talked about how there's often a hook, I think most of the time, a hook, a payoff, um, a pleasant Vedana in in, uh, the judging of the self. Look at that inter- those internalized messages that you have. You know whether you've taken on the attitude of those authority figures, like the Jules Pfeiffer quote, uh, as a way to protect yourself, so that you could kind of navigate the challenging family situation and not stand out and not try to individuate. Um, to to look to to see the message that many of us got. You know. You're, not, you're this way, you're not enough that way, why can't you be like so-and-so up the street? Why can't you be good like your older sister? Why can't you get A's like your brother or whatever it is? To see how we've taken in this message and feel the pain of it. 
feel the pain of it. Again, as I said, as we really start to value the possibility of a heart that's receptive and kind and compassionate, we need to be included in that field of compassion. It's actually the most important place to start. And that metta and compassion can be the default response rather than this vigilant judging and evaluation and criticism. And so the metta phrases, the metta practice, may I be happy, may I be at ease. The compassion phrase, may I be free of this suffering, starts to point us in another direction. And we're motivated, we're really inspired, feel the possibility of that transformation by being willing to feel the pain of the closed heart, of the sense of separation. I just found this quote from uh, Marion Williamson, uh, who's done a lot of work with the Course of Miracles, self-help kind of uh, writing. She said, one day I looked at something in myself that I had been avoiding because it was too painful. Yet once I did, I had an unexpected surprise. Rather than self-hatred, I was flooded with compassion for myself because I realized the pain necessary to develop that coping mechanism to begin with. To actually feel it, to turn to it, and then it can bring up the compassion. So we start to see these tendencies. So this is all in the field of our mindfulness practice, not a separate side project. Mindfulness of the thoughts, mindfulness of the feelings. Jack Cornfield says, start to count the judging thoughts. You know, take a day and just count everyone. By the time you get up to 564, you'll kind of get a sense of how conditioned and automatic they are. Give it a name or a voice, you know, give it a, you know, Mrs. Smith from second grade or You know, I had a student who made it a stuffed purple dragon, and that was what the judging voice was manifesting as. Often there's other emotions, other hindrances at play. There's restlessness or doubt, and because they're present, the mind contracts into judging. When we see how automatic it is, we don't need to beat ourselves up so much. It is a habit of the mind but we need to bring it into the light of the mindfulness so we can begin to work with it. To bring in the metta as an antidote. Metta is a great antidote to the judging, whether you consciously do it or it happens spontaneously. Often, especially if we're judging others, the the movement can be to do metta for the other, and that's a beautiful response. But I actually think more helpful to do metta for yourself because that's where the suffering is. May I feel safe. May my heart open with kindness. May I be at ease instead of the negativity. And it may feel fake saying the phrases when the heart is contracted. There was my dear friend Carol Wilson, not here to share her wisdom wisdom with us this retreat, said one time, one of her throwaway lines that that she's so good at, fake metta is better than real aversion any (laughs) time. So go with the fake metta instead of the aversion. One last um, practice I'll give you. Joseph has a practice for working with uh, judging thoughts, and his is you have a judging thought, and then you add, and the sky is blue. So you can try that. 
it never worked for me because I'd go, yeah, the sky is blue and it is true. You know, I am like this or they're like that or this is wrong or bad. That didn't work for me. So I tried to figure out something that would help. And I was practicing here. And if you've been out walking around, you'll see there's chipmunks, right? And they're very cute. I love animals. Chipmunks are very, you know, little <laughs> cheeks full of nuts running around. So what I decided as a practice was every time I had a judging thought, I would add, and chipmunks are cute. And it would just make me smile, you know, chipmunks. Who doesn't like, I mean, maybe if they chew the wiring in your car, you don't like them, but I like chipmunks. They're very cute. But substitute whatever works for you, your dog, your cat, your grandchild, whatever just takes a sting out of that judging thought. We change the channel. Change the channel often enough, you'll, you'll lose it as a preset. And it's one you kind of have to dial back in. And after a while, it's just not there anymore. It just doesn't happen in the same way. So we practice acceptance. We practice learning to be kind. And then that becomes how we do this practice and how we live our lives. So I'll just finish with a poem by Derek Walcott, who Walcott, who was born in St. Lucia in the Caribbean, called Love After Love. Time will come with the time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, Sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. So let's let the words settle into silence for a moment. for your attention. We have about half hour for walking and encourage you to come back for chanting the words of kindness. Lovely way to finish the formal day, to just let that 
seep in the attitude of metta, chanting the Karaniya Metta Sutta tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.